This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. One of the things that came up today and it's been talked about long is the uh, Liberals announcing the details of a comprehensive inquiry into missing and murdered Aboriginal women. And I know that this was a major campaign promise, but you ask me, it is absolutely pointless and nothing more than politics. Inquiries and inquests, in my opinion, do nothing. And, and I've covered several. My experience is that lawyers will get rich. Victims will get their hopes up that finally they'll be heard. But in the end, I think it gives us nothing more than warm and fuzzies. But I don't think it will change anything. And I don't say this as someone who doesn't think there are problems. I just don't think it's a solution. But it's a very political issue, certainly politicized in the uh, last election. Stephen Harper didn't want another review because there have already been as many as 40 studies. So the spin got underway. Uh, We have had numbers in since 2014. The RCMP laid out uh, detailed numbers of those killed and the killers. And just to give you some context of what we're talking about, of the 1,181 Aboriginal women killed between 1980 and 2012, 70% involved Aboriginals. So 90% of all victims knew their their killers. So my question is, if we have all this data, why are we wasting it again for another two years on an inquiry? Is it just to give us the warm and fuzzies? It just doesn't make sense to me. Let's bring in Anthony Fury who writes for the Toronto Sun, to break down whether or not I'm just being unreasonable. Am I being unreasonable, Anthony? Hey, Alex. No, in fact, I'd almost take it more more strongly worded than you in both directions. First of all, not only do I think it's an important issue, but a column I wrote during the last election, I think that Aboriginal prosperity and improving their life indicators is the most important public policy initiative and issue in Canada. Why? Simply for the fact that you got all these people living in what's equivalent to third world conditions in a country as prosperous as this. And if we're going to have a state, a welfare state to do anything, it should be to make sure that you don't have teenagers doing suicide packs and so forth. Major important issue. However, I'd also double down on what you said in that I think not only is this inquiry a waste of time and a waste of money, but it could arguably be prolonging the situation and stopping us from doing immediate results. Yeah, I mean, we've had this data for for a number of years, and hey, it's 2016, and so I say, do something. I don't need to talk about it. I, I, I mean, I, I, and I think many in that community agree that this is just yet another um, stall tactic. Right. Trudeau said during the election that he would immediately call an inquiry. Well, he did immediately call one, but it's only going to be commencing September 1st. So that's about a year gone by. Then we're told that the inquiry would take at least two years. When government says at least before something, I mean, usually they say, no, no, it's only going to take two years. It'll only take two years. And then it takes like two and a half or three. So the fact they're even saying at least shows, come on, it's going to take a lot longer than that. So let's say it takes three years. There you go. And then let's the main thing we have to point out here, this is an inquiry. It'll just have recommendations. There's no binding thing going on. There's no there's no public policy or legislation coming after this. So a committee will then look at it. And, and let's say, let's be ambitious here and say the committee looks at it and they present legislation, the government picks it up and they table it. That's another year, four years, Alex. Mm-hmm. That's the whole Trudeau term. So basically, he will have dragged his feet on this issue for the entire term. Instead of doing the hard work out there, which is sitting down, putting your heads together, looking at the data you have right now and figuring out what can we do. And I think the answers, 
I don't even want to say hidden in plain sight because they're not hidden because we're talking about them in the papers every day. Yeah, I mean, look, and nowhere in this inquiry, and I think it's uh, important to point out, do we worry about men or boys? Uh, They are killed even more so than women. So if we're going to spend $50 million over the next, yes, you're right, four years to to come up with some guidelines and some photo ops, why are we not addressing that as an issue? Now, when you turn around and point out the RCMP data, which you did to people who are advocates of the inquiry, you say, look, we know who's killing them. We know the issue. We know what's going on. They say, well, yeah, that's not exactly what we mean. We don't want to know the raw information. What we want to know is these sort of underlying socioeconomic factors. And I get that, and I think that matters, but it's also pretty plain obvious. It's that Aboriginal Canadians are more likely to live on the fringes of society than other Canadians, and people living on the fringes of society are more in dire straits and exposed to violence and addiction and situations where there's despair. So there's obviously going to be things like suicide and death and abductions. I hate to say obviously, but that's just a fact of the matter. So what do we need? We go back to any time you sit at a round table. A few months ago, I was at an Aboriginal business forum. Paul Martin was one of the keynote speakers, and then uh, former grand chiefs uh, were, were speakers as well. And what were they talking about? They were talking about education. They were talking about entrepreneurship. Alex, the Aboriginal population in Canada is the fastest growing population in Canada. That is an un- currently untapped market opportunity mm-hmm. for everyone, for us to hire them, to get them into the education system, for them to create their own businesses. Those are the solutions. We're talking about them all the time. We just need to knuckle down and do more of the hard work. One of my concerns is that this, and I don't doubt that it will be one of the recommendations, is more social uh, programs for Aboriginal youth, etc. My worry is, as we've seen many, many times across this country, is that the money will not get to those social programs because it will um, stay at the top. Uh, You know, there is known corruption uh, in some areas uh, in the Aboriginal leadership, and it is this government that took away the transparency. So we never really know if the money gets to where it needs to go go? Well, there's certainly an us and them when it comes to Aboriginal issues. And the us and them isn't natives versus non-natives by any means. The us and them is the power brokers and the political class against the regular Joe. And I I think regular Joe Canadians and taxpayers should, and and many of them do, realize that they're really allies with the average First Nations person who just wants good governance, who wants accountability, who wants stability and prosperity for their families. And that's the prism through which we need to see this. The challenge is that uh, Trudeau certainly endorses this nation-to-nation concept where the 613 First Nations communities around the country are sort of separate nations. So we can't really, we can't even feel like we have any duty or responsibility to, uh, to enforce standards of accountability there. That's seen as, you know, white-splaining or whatever sort of buzzword they want to use. Yeah, so where does this go? I mean, other than giving us the warm and funny fuzzies, you know, and the appearance, because that's really all today was about, was, you know, announcing this grandiose um, um, inquiry that, that will take a long time. To me, nothing's really changed. Well, something has changed, though, Alex, and I've got good news for you. Throughout these four years in which nothing is going to happen with this inquiry, the number of, the, the number of small businesses and corporations registered by Aboriginal Canadians will increase. Their general GDP is probably going to increase, as it has done after, uh, over the past 10 years. The Aboriginal people who are not the power brokers in the system, but who are, who are the people who are knuckling down and starting their businesses, 
making education move forward, the chiefs who aren't doing the road blockades but who are actually brokering deals to grow their community, they're going to keep doing that because they care about their communities and doing the hard work. And those are the people we need to look for. Those, those are the, the heroes out there who we need to tell their stories because they're doing great things for their community, and they're not going to wait four years for Trudeau to turn around and you know, come up with some sort of policy initiative. So if we're doing our jobs, and the thing about inquiries is they're very... Um I don't want to say they're boring to cover, but they're, they're, they take a long, long time. So the most compelling parts of them, when you actually hear from those affected by violent crime, you know, it's hard to hear those stories because they get buried in all of the technicalities of these things. So like I said, it makes a lot of lawyers very, very rich, but the substance and substance of the, the topic at hand often gets lost. And so if we're doing our jobs, that's going to require the media to follow every step of the way. That ain't going to happen. No, certainly. And the question is, as I'm talking about the sort of two different communities in the Aboriginal orthodoxy, is it the people who are sort of the power brokers and then the people who want the more social workers, or is it the people who want the economic prosperity and the business growth? And who's going to get hurt in this and who's, who's, who we're going to listen to and so forth? And people who are making uh, criticisms of the inquiry or trying to get sort of new narratives into this inquiry, they should be listened to as well, because there's a lot of Aboriginal voices out there who'd probably like to say things who might not actually fit with the agenda of the commissioners and the people uh, crafting uh, the, the, this whole inquiry to begin with. And, and we need to hear from them. And if they're not brought into the system and brought into the inquiry as it officially is, and the media need to go around the inquiry and tell their stories, as I think a lot, a lot of people have been doing, as, as I've been doing through going to these Aboriginal business conferences and, and letting the sort of good news and the success stories get out there. Sure. But but this could, you know, come back. I know that, that this was very politicized in the last election. Um, you know, it, it becomes one of those talking points. But the, the true order of success is to actually get tangible results from this. This could, in fact, backfire. Uh, on the liberals if they don't actually address the issue. They, they told this community, they told indigenous people across this country that they would fix the system. They'd be the first. You're absolutely right. And the biggest challenge, I think, with Trudeau's whole campaign last year was he campaigned on this idea that Canada was in these dark ages, which the numbers did not suggest was true. And we have this sort of villainous dictatorial prime minister. And Trudeau, through his through his sort of willing to listen to people and collaborate and sit down with people will make all of our lives better and our troubles are going to go away. It was a very compelling and attractive narrative for many people, which is, I think, why we saw him win a majority and why he's still exceedingly popular in the polls. But they're certainly lacking a lot of specifics as to how you turn goodwill into good results. And on this issue, you're completely right that this will happen more than in most of them. And the other issue, you know, is, is I think that you know, while he's out doing his photo ops and, and doing what he does well, which is connecting with people across the country, uh, you know, kind of just the photo op stuff, um, his MPs are being left to deal with kind of the realities of some of the big, bold promises that the government made to the Indigenous communities. Uh, one of those being in the Truth and Reconciliation, um, you know, ruling that came out. And they, they overwhelmingly, without even questioning it, said, yes, 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 we'll do it and we'll fulfill all of it. Whereas uh, then Stephen Harper and Mr. Mulcair said, hold on a second. We aren't able to do that. And I think the reality is now setting in, which they had to finally admit is um, we actually can't implement a lot of what this proposal is, which could cost trillions for Canadians. 
The Truth and Reconciling Commission brought forward what I thought was interesting human narrative. And if there's Canadians out there who don't know the full story of the residential school system, which is this horrific example of government overreach dismantling the family and creating intergenerational trauma, then read it. You'll learn from it. But the recommendations I found were very trite, unactionable, and sometimes, I, I mean, darn right dictatorial ideas that they would have a direct say in the law school curriculum and stuff like that, which the government should have absolutely nothing to do with. Uh, there were a lot of problems with those recommendations. Trudeau's team read those recommendations. They knew a number of them were just not good ones, and they still said they'd implement all of them so they could win the political brownie points from it, and that was wrong. Yeah, and they're not the only party to do it. But again, I think it was dangerous because, again, you're failing a community that is constantly used as a political pawn uh, and, you know, in in election scenarios. It's just wrong and you build further distrust. Interestingly, you write in your article about uh, some of the decision making. And we've had two really big headlines that aren't necessarily talkable in the last couple of days, but certainly the the issue with Supreme Court uh, decisions being made now. Now, and of course, this increase. These are, these are big headlines that uh, are going to get kind of buried in the dog days of summer. Um, but you suggest in your article, uh, which you can pick up in the Toronto Sun, is about the partisan decision making that was not supposed to happen under this current government. Well, I found it very amusing yesterday, Alex, that when the Prime Minister was announcing this sort of new process for selecting Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, judges, which would come through an advisory panel, and that uh, which is from the legal community, some advisors from the legal community, and then he'd pick from a list of three or what have you. He was saying this is nonpartisan and independent. And again, to to my point about last election, Trudeau was trying to say we lived in a sort of dictatorial dark age, and he, through his sort of magnetism, is going to make us move beyond that. He's been saying. We're going to be nonpartisan and independent on so many issues, Senate reform, electoral reform, now Supreme Court judge appointment reform. He's going to change the parliamentary budget officer soon. That's going to be independent and nonpartisan. Whoa, 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 hold on a second. You are changing many institutions in this country in quite serious ways, meaning this is going to be sort of radical cultural change of Canada, and somehow this is this independent nonpartisan thing. I mean, give me a break. Have the decency to say, I'm making these choices, these decisions, because I think they're best and I'm going to fight for them. Not, oh, it's a sort of magical nonpartisan thing that I'm, I'm just randomly doing. That's not true at all. They are all very partisan decisions. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that because he was elected as a liberal. Right. Okay. But the bottom line is, um, there's only one that I think that will come back that will understand, you know, resonate with people. And that would probably be the electoral reform. And the fact, you know, that's a sweeping change Canadians can kind of get their head around. They can't get their head around the Supreme Court of Canada. It doesn't interest them. But where they'll see it, I think, is in the decision of changing the way we vote in this country. And that might get people talking about, "Eh, I'm not so sure that I like what's going on here. I think you're completely right. When you add up all these reforms together, he's basically trying to take the idea of liberal as nonpartisan, as neutral, as the norm. All of these reforms are kind of done in this sort of mushy Laurentian elite, Laurentian consensus, uh, liberal values way, where institutionally all the institutions are being changed to sort of be naturally knee-jerk liberal. I mean, that's the most partisan thing you can get. Yeah. The politics of politics is always very political. Anthony, thank you.
Thank you, Alex. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It's almost unheard of for a sitting president to not only weigh in on an election, but on Tuesday, Barack Obama went even further when he declared Donald Trump is unfit for the top job. I think the Republican nominee is unfit uh, to serve as president. Uh, I said so last week, and uh, he keeps on proving it. All right. So, look, now Obama's calling on the GOP to pull all its support from Trump. And in true Trump style, his response was to tweet out that, quote, Obama will go down perhaps as the worst president in the history of the U.S., quote. Um, And I can't actually disagree with that. I'm not a big fan of Obama. Very disappointing. I I believed in hope and change and uh, got none of that. Um, But... You know, Trump is also saying now that he's not going to support other high-profile GOP members. And so now there's all this infighting. Established Republicans are furious with Trump because he's not supporting them. So there's no question there are very uh, deep, deep divisions within the GOP and, and some in that party. Some in the Republican Party are actually urging their constituents to vote Hillary. But here's what I find ironic. On the very same day President Obama accuses Trump of being unfit for office, we learn about a very secretive deal, a very shady deal, and a very dangerous deal that it made with Iran. Back in January, the U.S. government airlifted $400 million to Iran. It was in an unmarked plane. It was in the dark of night. And it was back in January where they used that money to free four detained Americans. So the guy accusing Trump of being inept paid ransom in secret to a terrorist regime, which essentially puts more people at risk. We have a Canadian who is in custody right now, a Canadian professor who's languishing in in an Iranian prison. What does that mean for her? This is a story... That should be getting a lot of attention. I get that it's not sexy. I get that it's not like the kind of thing you sit around the water cooler talking about. But these are the things that are important. And if I'm Trump, which I'm not, I've got much better hair. But if I'm Trump, and if he is smart, which I'm not really sure what he is, he should be going after his opponents on this Let's bring in Ray Hurd, all things political, to uh, chat about this. Hey, Ray. Um, I think I'm qualified to say this because I covered the White House for 14 years, Johnson and Nixon and more. Obama has been disclosed by what you've just told your viewers as a liar because Obama said, and Justin Trudeau has said, they never pay ransom to terrorists or terrorist regimes. That's exactly what Obama did, and we Canadians lost two very brave hostages recently when our government refused to pay ransom. So what Obama has done for the Western world in an election year is to set a president. And Donald Trump this morning put out a tweet in which Donald Trump said Hillary Clinton was part of the process of paying off the Iranian regime, not just the $400 million in cash 
that they airlifted there in January, but previously when they made the Iran deal, which I think is a phony one, where Iran promises not to make nuclear weapons, I'm pretty sure they're doing that, Hillary Clinton was part of that process as Secretary of State. So this is a very serious issue you've raised, and I think it's tragic and disconcerting to note as a journalist that the Clinton News Network, which used to be called CNN, has barely covered the story. They are still focusing on the feud between Donald Trump and the Pakistani-American Khan clan over the son who died a war hero many years ago. So this election is getting interesting. It still has 98 days to go, and a lot more canon will happen that you and I don't expect, like what's just happened over the disclosure in the Wall Street Journal that Obama paid a ransom. Yeah, I mean, look, since uh, that ransom was paid, two more Americans have been detained. And again, I mentioned the Canadian professor, this woman is over there. And and how do you fix this? Do you just keep giving this uh, terrorist regime? uh, Look, I am no fan of the Iranian government. I do not think we should be making friends with him. And I would never have supported any kind of Iranian deal because they're just not believable. So what does it say about the people that are, you know, languishing away in the prisons? Are they going to also be, you know, a paid Uh, to get them out of jail? Well, I think that that may happen secretly. Obama tried to do this secretly, and the Wall Street Journal outed him. I think that those people, including the two Canadian families who lost um, relatives who were beheaded by pro-ISIS Filipino Mm -hmm. Muslim terrorists, I think it's tragic for them because they have every reason to say, and so do Americans who were beheaded by ISIS, hey, wait a minute, Obama paid to get four service people out of Iran. He paid a ransom. Why doesn't he pay for us? Why does Obama distinguish between who he should pay ransoms for to the families and the parents of the people who get beheaded That's not justice. That is Orwellian justice. If this were uh, an election back in your day, if this had been uh, Nixon running anybody else, this would be the story. I mean, Obama stood up yesterday, which is also unheard of for a sitting president to get up and and call, uh, you know, someone running for the job in, you know, unqualified. He's already stepped over the bounds uh, doing that. But this would be an enormous story and Uh the networks don't care about it. Sure, it would be huge, and I think the Fox network will go to town on this one. CNN and the major networks will not do that. But let's go back just a few days. Uh, well, it first for a week or so, at the Republican convention, a very brave mother stood up in public and said that Hillary Clinton had been responsible for the assassination of her son in Benghazi when Hillary was Secretary of State. That was a big event. She's a credible person. Her name is Smith. She made this allegation, and the American media and the Canadian media barely covered that. Then we fast forward to the Democratic Convention when this Pakistani-American, whose name is Khan, makes a savage attack on Donald Trump because... 
his son was killed by terrorists in, I think, Syria. But the media goes literally berserk for the last four days. The, the, and Trump naturally responded, which he had the right to do, when this guy stood up and attacked him at the Democratic convention at the, at the behest of Hillary. Now, since then, it's been disclosed, and not widely reported, that he, the father of the genuine hero, war hero, who happens to be a captain and happens to be a Muslim American, or happened to be one, that he ran an immigration scheme to get people into the United States if they paid a huge fee, which you might call a ransom, to him, he could get them in much quicker than other people. So you have, on the one hand, a grieving mother talking to the Republicans about her son killed in Benghazi, executed by ISIS, and then you get the other case of the Pakistani-American soldier. There is a comparison between the two, and I think the grieving mother has every right to be upset. And Hillary Clinton, by the way, attacked the mother of the Benghazi victim by saying, oh, well, she probably doesn't remember what really happened, blah, blah, blah. But you've got to be even-handed in journalism. What's source for the goose is source for the gander. And in this case, or these two cases, that has not happened, and that's not excusing Donald Trump. If I had the vote, and I went to university in America, and I spent a long time there covering the White House, I would either not vote, or I might vote for the Libertarian Party, and the latest polls show the Libertarian Party may get over 10% of the vote. And if it does get over 10%, that could be the decisive difference between Clinton and Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're a card-carrying liberal. We're talking to Ray Hurd. He's been involved in liberal elections on this side of the border. He's covered the White House on the other side of the border. So you come at this with a bit of experience. But, you know, Trump is bombastic. He just, for whatever reason, you can't get the guy on track. And and now we've got reports that the big guys, like the Rudy Giuliani's, the Newt Gingrich's, they have to sit down with him and say, get your head in the game because you are not just making enemies, you know, out there in the media, but you're making enemies within this party. Can he get this back on track? Because clearly well, Hillary I'm Clinton's going to sure. get the free ride. I'm not sure, Alex, that it is really off track because basically the establishment... And you remember that there were 17 candidates for the, for the Republican nomination, 17. Trump won easily. He destroyed those 17. Trump's whole campaign is I, Donald Trump, am largely self-funding my campaign. Hillary only collected $67 million last month. I'm self-funding it. I am running against the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment, in other words, Hillary, who've let down working-class Americans. And by the way, Bernie Sanders said much the same thing about the plight of the hard-working Americans who'd been let down by the Democratic establishment and the Republican. That's the only thing they had in common. And I think Bernie Sanders, much as I disagree with him, would have been a much stronger candidate to run against 
against Trump than Hillary Clinton. But he, he's uh, fallen on his sword and he's backed her. But I haven't heard him speaking like Barack Obama. If you look at the media over the last several days, it looks like Barack Obama is breaking the law by running for a third term, which he's banned from doing, because he is the story. Where is Hillary Clinton? Yeah, Hillary it- Clinton has, in a way, been overshadowed or overtaken by Barack Obama. And why is he doing that? Well, because... I think he knows that she's such a weak candidate. She has the highest unfavorable um, rating, and Trump's is high, but not as high as her. Most Americans hate Hillary Clinton, and they don't trust Hillary Clinton. So I think Obama is doing this almost in desperation. desperation. He feels, if I don't step into the breach, she could go down the tube. Sure, but let me jump in here, because if I'm Hillary Clinton, I'm not saying a darn thing, because A, the media is not going to keep me held to account. B, Trump just just walks into all this stuff on his own. But we have this report that yesterday, the uh, Democratic National Committee, you know, that's been cleaning house after those email links that ended uh, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz's career there. Three of its top staffers had to quit, which means there's either a much bigger story coming or they are literally falling apart. Now, if if. You know, you had a Republican on this side happening with the staffers quitting. That would be an enormous story. This is barely even getting mentioned. So if I'm Hillary Clinton, I'm not saying a darn word. I'll let everyone else do my fighting for me. I agree with you 100%, and it's even worse, Alex, because basically what Fusserman Schultz did and the three who, was, who were forced to resign yesterday is basically to demonize and libel Bernie Sanders. So here, here you had something worse than most other political crimes. You had the Democratic Commi- Committee, which is supposed to be impartial in the race for the White House on its side of the aisle, actively conspiring against Bernie Sanders. And that brings me to the next thing. Bernie Sanders has the support, or won the support, of tens of millions of young, educated Americans in all parts of the country. Hillary hardly got any of their votes. Now, Bernie Sanders says, and he had no choice, I guess, guess, that he's supporting Hillary, but I haven't heard much from him on all these scandals. But that does not mean, because he says he's supporting her, that those tens of millions of young, smart, working-class Americans, many of them, will vote. They might not vote, and if they don't vote, Donald Trump can win. So although the pundits, the establishment, the New York Times, Washington Post, have almost written Donald Trump off, the people haven't done that yet, and I think Trump is a reality, he's running a reality campaign as though he's on television. Every day you switch on TV, and there's another chapter of the Donald Trump drama. So it's got a way to go, and I think he's smart, smarter than people realize. I have someone in Toronto who's had dealings with him, uh, real estate dealings. And my friend, who happens to be a liberal, said to me the other day, you must understand one thing about Donald Trump. There's two Donald Trumps. There's the reality star who, say, he, who says controversial things 
to dominate the headline cycle. And then there's the businessman, Donald Trump, who's a dealmaker. And he added, as a dealmaker, Donald Trump knows how to compromise. So when Trump says he's going to get rid of NAFTA, and Canadians have a nervous breakdown about that, that's not what he's really going to do. If he does win, and the chances are probably one in three that he will right now, if Donald Trump wins, he'll renegotiate NAFTA with Canada and Mexico. And I think Canada will get a much better deal than Mexico, because when I last checked, millions of Canadians aren't illegally crossing the American border every year, as are many Mexicans who are desperate to get jobs. Yeah, and and Conrad Black has also uh, knows him and has I've spoken to him about uh, about Donald Trump and he speaks actually quite highly of him. Says yes, he's bombastic what you're seeing now, but if you get him one on one, he's actually very thoughtful and he's smart and he listens. But again, Ray, it ain't coming through, and so as long as you're letting the media write your headlines and yeah. a lot of them are pre-written, his message is not going to get out there. So at what point does he switch gears? I don't think he does, because I think we have to bear in mind, Alex, everyone in Canada talks about CNN. Compared with the Fox News Network, owned by an Australian, Rupert Murdoch, CNN has no numbers. Fox News dominates the news cycle in all news, and they have many more viewers who tune in. Now, unfortunately for me, I can't get Fox on my Rogers cable package. I'd like it, but I can't get it. So I'm going to arrange to get it. So be careful not to assume that because the New York Times and CNN says this and that, that that's what average Americans think. And a lot of them do not tell the truth when they are polled by pollsters. So I'll get down to the bottom line here. Yes, right now, Hillary Clinton has an advantage. She's got Obama working his such-and-such such off for her. She has the establishment media acting as an echo chamber for her, which they're doing. But that doesn't mean that the working-class average American won't, in the end, give Trump the benefit of the doubt in spite of some of the truly dumb things he has said. Yeah, I think I I still think he will win because I think there's an anger out there that's not being uh, tapped by 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 the media. I I still think there are so many Americans at the middle level that are just so fed up. And, and like we saw with Rob Ford, you know, they'll go out and quietly vote for the underdog, and they don't care yeah. what the elitists say. Unlike Rob Ford, though, you can't seem to control Trump's messaging. So all I say to him is just just be quiet, Donald. Just yeah. stop talking. But, you know, I've just spent uh, nearly a month in the United Kingdom, and Brexit happened then. Yep. That was a vote against the establishment. That simple. The establishment at Westminster in London, and worse, the Eurocratic establishment in Brussels that told, or told and still does tell, British housewives how much they have to pay for butter. So there is this in the Western world and it even extends to the Philippines, there's a sort of populist vote that appears to be more right-wing in France and in Britain, maybe, but also, as reflected by Bernie Sanders, can also be very left-wing. 
So we must be careful not to typecast people. Mm -hmm. We do know one thing. Americans, Europeans, and so far, not Canadians under the rule of King Justin Trudeau, seem to be appalled and resentful when it comes to the, quote, establishment, unquote, in the nation's capitals. Yeah. Stay tuned, Ray. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Alex. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Curious twist out of Queen's Park. Yep. In the dog days of summer, news that a by-election is being called in an area known as Scarborough Rouge Valley. So the folks in that riding are going to head to the polls September 1st. So, yeah, who cares? Who cares about by-elections? Well, you. You should anyway. Not only are they very expensive, because we're paying for them after all, but I think they speak to the referendum on the party. It's, it's a referendum on party performance. And in this particular riding, which is a very hotly contested area... There's a huge opportunity uh, for Patrick Brown. And you may recall, this is a riding that was very suddenly vacated without reason, which is even more odd. Uh, but the announcement came from one of the candidates, not the premier herself. So why isn't the premier announcing a by-election? Let's ask Christina Blizzard of the Toronto Sun. Good afternoon, Christina. Well, hello, Alex. So we knew that this by-election was eventually going to be called, but a, a curious way of coming out, No. Well, absolutely. It was bizarre. I was sitting with another reporter, and suddenly in our inbox, um, we got a press release for the the liberal candidate in Scarborough Rouge announcing the by-election. And it didn't even include the date of the by-election, which we could figure out because you know that the by-election is going to be called on a Wednesday. If this, if it was going, if it was called today, we knew it would be on September 1st. But usually you have a formal announcement from the Premier's office. The other interesting thing, Alex, is that there are two ridings vacant right now. There's Scarborough Rouge River uh, in the east end of Toronto, but there's also Ottawa Vanier. Ottawa Vanier is a very safe liberal seat. They did not drop the writ on that one today. So, Why? So well, what would be the rationale in, in your mind? What I'm suspecting is that it is such a liberal seat that there's a battle going on as to who gets to run there. Because if you are the liberal candidate there, it's pretty knee-jerk. You will become an MPP. So that's my guessing that this probably has more to do with uh, liberal insider politics. Well, everything's politics and politics, as you well know. I, the, the thing that bothers me most, and we've touched upon it a little bit, is why we are having a by-election at all in Scarborough, given that the MP suddenly quit. Is it Bal Balkasun? Bas Balkasun, yeah. I, I, No one knows why he left. And there may be a very, uh, you know, direct reason and maybe a very valid reason. But the fact is we're paying a couple of hundred grand now for a by-election that we really shouldn't have to have. Oh, easily. It, it, what, what, my, what I've been told is that it's upward of 250000 to run a by-election. What I know, all I know is that um, Baz Balkasun, I was told by people, he was actually the deputy speaker, and he was due to be in the chair one afternoon, and he had an appointment with Premier Kathleen Wynne, went to that appointment, and when he came back, he couldn't take, he, he didn't want to take the chair um, as he was scheduled to do, but he was apparently absolutely furious, according to my sources, and just sort of stomped out and has not been seen since. 
Uh, our reporter here, Sean Jeffers, tried to reach him by phone. He pretty well hung up on him, told him he didn't want to talk about it. It's um, So what's he doing? Does, does he not have uh, to answer for this? I mean, I, I find it a little odd that the taxpayers are now footing the bill for a, a by-election. He's got constituents that he still works for, and we don't know why he's gone. I mean... I just don't understand that. Well, exactly. I mean, it's 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 quite shocking to me. Um, in in Britain, of course, it's against the law to for an MP to resign, and you have to go through this convoluted process if if you do need to do that. Um, but it's it is absolutely shocking to me. I've been getting emails, lots of emails from people in his writing who are outraged that he would ju- just leave in such a, a mysterious, abrupt, whatever fashion, with no explanation. I mean, it, it is quite bizarre. He is accountable. He's actually, I believe, an MPP is not accountable directly to the Premier. They are accountable to the voters. That's who can keep them or get rid of them. It's, it's not up to the Premier, whatever, to say, to force someone to quit. It's up to the voters to vote in or vote out their representatives. Right. And so this is an opportunity for Scarborough Rouge Valley to speak directly for Ontarians uh, to Queen's Park. And I hope they go kicking and screaming uh, and sending a message. But I don't know really the the ground. You know, what are we talking? I mean, is this is this a this, I think this is going to be a real dogfight because we've got no incumbent. But th- this is winnable for either Horbath or Patrick Brown. Absolutely. I think, I think you're absolutely right for, and I think that it's anyone's, uh, anyone's writing for the very reason you point out. There could be a three-way split, which means, uh, I'm, what I'm hearing and what Patrick Brown is telling people is that he is doing very well on the ground. He's got a very good candidate there in Raymond Cho, who's a longtime counselor, very high profile. That's what he uh, won plus. The other thing he has going for him is Doug Ford, Rob Ford, the late Rob Ford's brother, who is hugely popular in Scarborough because of his support for the Scarborough sub- subway. He has been helping out in that riding. This could be Patrick Brown's, you know, breakthrough in the 416 area code that he has been desperate to get. So the Tories are working very hard. And it's, it's also a demographic that could skew to the left. And, uh, you know, if Andrea Horvath and the NDP, you know, decided to work it and got, uh, it could even go their way. My sense is that it's probably more likely to go Tory, but it has been a, a liberal riding for as long as I can remember. Yeah, look, the big criticism I hear of Patrick Brown is like, I don't know anything about him, to which I always say he has a huge ground game that you don't necessarily hear about. But he is out there. I mean, the guy has no life. He is out there every single day pounding the pavement in small, tiny communities trying to show people who he is. So his ga- his ground game is not to be underestimated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if you follow him on Twitter, as I'm sure you do and I do, you will see him out every single night at two or three events. And he's reaching out. He's sort of the Jason, he, I think he's trying to do for the provincial PCs, which what Jason Kenney did federally when he is going into communities that are perhaps not uh, PC strongholds. Um, 
you know, you'll see him. He's very popular in the Tamil community. You will see him um, in, you know, the Punjabi community, in all kinds of communities that are not necessarily um, strongholds. You saw him. He was the first PC leader to march in pride. I mean, he is clearly trying to break down these silos that, uh, that the PCs have not even tried to enter before clearly he's he's trying to be a different kind of PC leader. Yeah, and uh, the other one taking uh, the issue of carbon pricing off the table to be criticized about because he's also said I'm I'm open to a cap and trade if it's uh, general uh, revenue gen- um, neutral. So he's got that, but uh, it sure is interesting. Uh, this is why I could never be a politician. I could not literally go to that many events. No, it absolutely. just it's <laughs> grueling, but he does it. But if if Kathleen Wynne loses this is that a big signal to her that that the electorate is fed up well i thought the way they i they whooped the liberals in uh with the oshawa i mean yes that was a tory riding but the liberals dragged in pierre trudeau their star you know you'll get a bigger political star these days than justin trudeau and that didn't move the voters in in whitby oshawa so you know, you would really like to think the voters in Scarborough Rouge River could send, you know, get out of their traditional voting habits and perhaps send a message for all of us. I mean, this is a big chance for these voters to say, no, we're tired of all this mismanagement, this waste, this incompetence, this cronyism that we want to, you know, we here we have a chance to send a message. We can't change the government, but we can tell them what we really don't like the way they're going about things. Right. But it is the summer. A lot of people are away. By-elections aren't exciting to talk about. And so, uh, you know, and I think that's something that that the liberals are counting on is that this is not going to be one of those things that people are talking about and therefore it won't necessarily get the attention it deserves. And the vote is on the Thursday before the Labor Day weekend. So, you know, when most people are heading off early to their cottages or they're getting their kids uh, off to university or they're getting their kids ready to go back to school, the liberals want the lowest possible voter turnout they can get get in this writing. Uh, you know, make, make no mistakes. They're very worried about this, and they've planned this very carefully. Yeah, we've got Patrick Brown coming on in a, uh, just a minute or two, but I wanted to ask you quickly about a tweet I saw you put out uh, regarding a Supreme Court ruling that is pretty big, and it has to do with the grassroots group Concerned Ontario Docs. Can you just quickly talk about what that mean, well, means? Well, yeah, the OMA had um, asked, had was going to allow proxies in this big vote. You know that there's a showdown between these two groups of doctors on this tentative deal with a lot of a lot of doctors are very unhappy with it, and they the OMA. They, and they actually shamed the OMA by having getting 3,000 docs to sign a petition. They shamed the OMA into having a full meeting with, um, with everyone voting, which was not the way it was going to be. Anyway, uh, the OMA was going to allow proxies, which would have basically given the OMA, the, you know, would easily have won this big vote that they're going to be having uh, later in August. Now that the Supreme Court has said no to that, it uh, it means it's it, it you know it's it, whoever shows up and I would think that concerned doctors are the people who are most likely to show up. So it's not going to hand the OMA an easy vote. This is going to be one to watch. It's going to be very interesting. 
Right. And does it signal then that uh, the unions may be breaking from, from Kathleen Wynne? Well, the, the OMA is a, is a different kind of uh, union in that, uh, you know, it's always been a little bit more um, uh, scattered, like the, the people, they don't have the same rank and file, uh, uh, they don't speak with the same rank and file voice as perhaps the teachers, but certainly the doctors are very angry uh, with the government. The government spent the past year attacking them, attacking high-billing doctors, accusing them of all, you know, sucking up vast amounts of money. Um, and I think that what this is doing, um, you know, they were very, uh, the doctors were very angry with the deal, which they say is just a six-page deal that was thrown together on the back of a napkin. I, I don't think the doctors represent all the unions, but I think that this, is, this spells serious trouble for the government. The last thing you want are, are disgruntled doctors. When you go to the, your doctor, you want to be sure he or she is is happy and, you know, happy to be serving you. Sure, yeah. Who wants to wait extra time in the waiting room when you don't have to? Christina, thank you. My pleasure, Alex. That's Christina Blizzard. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, Christine Blizzard joining us from Queen's Park to talk about the um, coming by-elections and I think what is a very big decision uh, coming out of the Supreme Court. So we'll keep our eye on that uh, issue. But I, I did want to bring in um, to the conversation the, the person I think could very well win this by-election. And as Christina pointed out, if if either Andrea Horvath or Patrick Brown can take Scarborough Rouge Valley away from the Liberals, I think it's a big signal. I think it speaks for the rest of Ontario as to how they're feeling. So let's bring in Patrick Brown to the conversation now. Thank you for joining me, Patrick. Alice, thanks for having me on your show. You ready for a by-election, are you? I am. Who doesn't like door knocking in the middle of summer? No kidding. Better than doing it in the winter. But, you know, um, look, it's going to be done at a time when a lot of people are not focusing on politics. They're getting the kids ready to go to school. You know, they're just trying to enjoy the last uh, bits of of their holiday. But we know that this is a very, very uh, competitive riding. You've got Raymond Cho, who's a well-known city councillor with built-in profile, who is your candidate. What are you hearing at the doors? Well, people are fed up. They're fed up with their hydro bills. They're fed up with the never-ending OPP investigations into the government's conduct. They're fed up with, frankly, everything costing more. It seems like Ontario under Kathleen Wynne is becoming increasingly unaffordable. And I think what's interesting about this by-election is this is a riding the Liberals have never lost. Frankly, in 2007, they won it by 51 points. When Mike Harris won massive majorities in 1995 and 1999, the Liberals still won this riding by a landslide. The fact that it's competitive, the fact that there's a chance the Liberals could lose, uh, a riding they have never lost, uh, you know, frankly shows the state of affairs of the Ontario Liberal Party, that uh, even seats seats are now, um, are now dogfights. Yeah, the one thing that I hear, and when I tweet out, you know, I'll be talking to Patrick Brown to find out where he's at and if he can win this by-election, a lot of people will say, I don't know who Patrick Brown is. Mm -hmm. I don't get him. I don't see him out there. What do you say uh, to those people who don't necessarily see you uh, front and center like they see Kathleen Wynne every day? How are you going to win this? Well, I think it's the nature of... um of, of the media, they'll, they'll cover the premier or the prime minister of the day more than they will the opposition leaders. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, 
despite not having that attention, you know, every poll that's been out for the last year have shown the progressive conservatives in the lead, uh, and where the premier has a massive disapproval rating. Um, that's not the case with my leadership or or, or the PC party. Um, I'm just going to continue to do what I do best, which is roll up my sleeves and work hard. Uh, and uh, I'm doing probably 10 to 15 events a day, uh, getting out to meeting Ontarians and actually listening, listening to their concerns, listening to uh, why it's more difficult for businesses to succeed, why it's more difficult for uh, families to afford living in Ontario, uh, and we're going to continue to raise their concerns, raise their voices at Queen's Park, whether it's on getting in the legislature and challenging the government on the cost of someone's hydro bill for not using any hydro, or whether it's uh, speaking up on behalf of families when, when the government cut uh, funding for uh, children with uh, with autism. We're going to continue to, uh, to to be that voice for those who aren't being heard in Kathleen Wynne's Ontario. But you know you cannot underestimate uh, this party. They are, when it comes to electioning and campaigning, you know, they'll get Trudeau out there. He'll do his door knocking. They're very, they're a very tough machine to beat. Well, I guess two things there. One, they they did bring Justin out in the Whitby Oshawa by-election. They had a big rally with him the night before the vote. And in Whitby Oshawa, they had their worst showing in 25 years. Um, Voters are smarter than the Liberals give them credit for. Uh, voters were able to distinguish there is a difference between the federal Liberal Party um, that remains popular and the one at Queen's Park that has lost the voters' confidence. Um, now, Kathleen Wynne can't confuse voters on that. They're not voting for Justin Trudeau. They're voting, do you want more of the scandal-ridden mismanagement of Kathleen Wynne? And so, you know, that 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 is, that is something at play. I, I guess the other thing, though, that I'd reference is that we can't under, underestimate the Liberals because they are extremely well-funded. And what came out in the media expose on the donation scandal um, was that the Liberals managed managed to to systematically have ministers reach out to those they were giving contracts to, mm-hmm. either the ministers themselves or their staff members, uh, to solicit donations in exchange uh, what appeared to be an exchange of contracts. And there was, uh, the Global Mail did an excellent expose highlighting contracts and donations that were linked back and forth. And so because of this, frankly, ethical abuse on fundraising, they now have lots and lots of money, and they will spend lots and lots of money uh, on attack ads. Um, in the last two by-elections, they ran attack ads, not talking about their own record, but attacking me personally. Um, and so we're prepared for that all over again in Scarborough. But, you know, just like in what the Oshawa and Simcoe North, I think most voters um, don't like that. Most voters are turned off by a government that can only run on, on attacking others rather than having the confidence in their own ideas. Yeah, but they can be relentless and ruthless, and, and, and some people do pay attention to them. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little irritated that I, uh, you know, I'm spending money on a by-election when the person running for that committed to the voters for four years, and now Baz Balkison, who's been there for a long time, is gone. Are we ever going to hear the reason why we're going to the polls? It, it, it is shocking that Kathleen Wynne will not speak about it. Um, you know, he did make a comment, though, uh, you know, before he resigned, uh, uh, that the... the the modern needs of medicine are not met in Scarborough. Um, I know he was deeply disappointed that the Liberals um, have refused to fund health care in Scarborough. The operating room at the Scarborough Hospital is the oldest in the province, built in 1951. They have to put some of the equipment in the hallways because it's so small and outdated. Um, so I think a lot of the Liberal MPPs in Scarborough are frustrated that, that they've had no luck getting heard by the Premier's office on hospital needs, on 
transportation infrastructure needs. Frankly, there's schools that I've toured in Scarborough that are some of the worst in the province, where there's asbestos, doors that don't uh, open, um, and, and the government has sort of taken Scarborough for granted. And so you can see, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe that's why Kathleen hasn't put Bass out there. Maybe he's one of the uh, disgruntled uh, Liberal MPPs uh, about her treatment to Scarborough, but because she won't talk about it, uh, because the Liberal MPPs uh, refuse to have any transparency or honesty of what's happened, uh, you know, we don't know. I'm sure it will come out. Patrick, on that note, good luck, and uh, we'll wait and see what happens. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.